Joseph was sold to the Midianites. So the question is, who are these people? Midians were mostly east of the Jordan and Dead Sea, and as far south and east as the Sinai Peninsula. What is interesting is that these traders were also called Ishmaelites, either uh, because simply they descended from Ishmael or because the term could just be used generally of desert people. In Exodus, Moses fled from Egypt and he married a girl whose father was the priest of Midian. As a result, the descendants of Moses had Midianite as well as Levite ancestry. In the book of Numbers, the Midianites become partners with Moab and sought to harm the Israelites. 200 years later, in the days of Gideon, God delivered the Midianites into the hands of Israel, and since then, well, the Midianites have really kind of disappeared from the earth. So, there you go, a little bit about the Midianites, and that's enough today for our historical minute. Let us pray. God, we thank you for today. It's just been beautiful in Phoenix lately, and so we thank you for that. We, we pray, though, for all the people that are, are sick or getting better from being sick, Lord, and continue to aid in that process. We ask that you be with us tonight as we study God's Word, as we dig in again to Genesis, and, and look, at, it's more of, a, more of that story, Lord, and more of the beginnings of things, more of the beginnings of the Israelites, and, and come to see that they're very much uh, as broken and messed up as we are. And so, Father, that you were able to work back then, you're still able to work today. And so we pray that we would get the things out of this that we need to, that we'd find comfort in your care and your presence and your continuing with us. And Father, that we'd be encouraged by it this evening. So we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. So I have to confess, when I found out where we were in the text, I was hoping Mike would have blown through some of this because uh, it promises some hard conversation today, but it's okay. So we're going to pick up in Genesis 37, beginning with verse 12. And again, I, I want to start off by saying that God is with us in our brokenness and that the people of Scripture, I know we use the term saints, but that doesn't mean that they were perfect by any stretch of the imagination. They were sinners and saints just like we are. They made mistakes. And sometimes they did some of the most atrocious, atrocious things you could comprehend. And so we begin in verse 12. So far, we know a little bit about Joseph. Joseph was born to Jacob's favorite wife. And so... A little bit of a favorite, you know, kind of moving forward. He was also a good kid. I mean, a good kid. He, he loved the Lord. He was obedient to his dad. Quickly became the favorite kid, <laughs> especially in light of some of his older brother's uh, extracurricular activities in terms of killing all the people of Sechem and things like that. So much so did he favor Joseph that he didn't hide it very well, apparently, so he could question his parenting skills at this point. But he gave him a multicolored robe, which set him apart, which was a very nice robe. All the brothers were envious of him. It created no shadow of any doubt that Joseph was his favorite, and it caused resentment and envy in his brothers. Then all of a sudden, God gives him a couple dreams. Dreams were also looked at very seriously during this time. They were viewed as messages from God himself. The fact that he was sharing these dreams and that he would rule over his brother and his parents were very unsettling to his brothers because they too took them seriously. And they also hated him for it. So envy, hatred, jealousy, all wrapped up in this beautiful family. So now in verse 12, it continues on. The fracturing of these brothers' relationship with Joseph has not gotten better. It says, Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Sechem. Anybody recognize the word Sechem? Sechem is where 
Simeon and Levi and a host of his brothers went and slaughtered the whole town, took their possessions. They actually fled from Sechem, where they still own property, because they were worried that the Canaanites of the land would come and seek a little retribution for what they had done. So in their wisdom, they go and pastured their flocks there. Apparently any hesitancy or fear or whatever that used to encapsulate their father was no longer present in them, and so they're going and they're taking their flocks up there. Um... And they would have been well-known probably in the area as well. And so um, either they were afraid of these guys or they couldn't believe where they were there. But anyway, that's where they were pastoring. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pastoring the flock at Sechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here am I. So he said to him, Go and see now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he had probably, Jacob had probably given most of the responsibilities of, of certainly shepherding over to his kids at this point. And so they were probably notifying their dad where they were. But they were going to Sechem. And, and Jacob still had a little hesitancy about them being there because of what had gone down, because of some of the ill feelings that had created. So he sends Joseph, probably a little bit hesitant to do that because he had kept him at home in the first place. But he sends Joseph to see if his brothers were okay. Natural curiosity, care, concern of the father sends his kid over there. So he sent him to the valley of Hebron, and he came to Sechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they? Where they are pastoring the flock? And the man said, You have gone, they have gone away, and for I heard them say, Let's go down to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Dothan is a small town. They had two huge wells usually. One was going to be evidently dry at this time. Maybe both were dry. But they had gone up there because of the wells, because there was water, because the pasture lands were good. So Joseph's coming to see his brothers who, remember, jealous, envious, don't like the guy. They saw him from afar and before he came near them, they conspired against them, him to kill him. A little past a little bit of brotherly animosity. They actually wanted to kill the kid and so rid themselves forever of this dreamer. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. It's an interesting thing, this thing called envy. It is the gateway to every other sin known to man. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples of that. In our culture today, I think you see this uh, quite a lot, actually. You're in a conversation with some people at the airport, and all of a sudden, they tell you that they are of the opposite political party. And all of a sudden, you start discussing one of the political themes of the day, and you find yourself getting irritated with this person that you just met, who before they told you the affiliation of their party, you kind of thought was pretty cool. But now, not only do you not think they're cool, but you think they're wrong in just about every aspect of life. And now you find yourself judging them again because they hold this different opinion than you do. And in our society, that's led to all sorts of atrocities, hasn't it? There's a comedian that, with our current president, had a picture of his head decapitated in one of her bits. There's famous people calling for his assassination. There's all sorts of things. Every president since Bush has been called the Antichrist at different points. For whatever reason in our culture today, and it's a version of envy, but we, can't, so we still can't stand the other side that we begin to objectify the other side. And, and, and in that objectification, 
because they disagree with us, we can't tolerate the fact that we could just have a disagreement and so we must vilify them. And with that vilification gives us permission then to hate them, right? And so you see that played out over and over and over. You see the same thing in inheritances, don't you? One kid receives more than the other. It could be a toaster more. It really doesn't matter. And all of a sudden, his siblings, who had before been somewhat harmonious, had gotten along to some degree, now have animosity toward this person that received the toaster or more, right? And they vilify how they got the toaster, and they condemn them for not sharing the toaster, and they go through great lengths to share every sort of evil against that person. And they exonerate themselves of saying, it's just not fair. They must have done something evil to attain that. Envy is one of those crazy things that somehow gives us permission in our heads to do every kind of sin imaginable and then justify it in our own eyes. And that's where the brothers were. They didn't like this guy that Joseph was the favorite. I mean, that would hurt any kid's feelings, right? It's bad parenting, actually, to, be, it's, to have it so brutally obvious. It was going to cause bad feelings. But the brothers couldn't stand it. And then he had these dreams seemed to be authenticating this whole idea that he would rule over them by God. Even dad was upset, thus lending to their righteousness, their righteous anger toward their brother. Remember, Simeon and Levi don't need any help being righteously angry, right? They went and killed a whole village because somebody had raped their sister. So here he comes. You hate him. They said, let's kill him, throw him in in the cistern, in the pits, and then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we'll see what will become of his dreams. In other words, we'll put an end to them. And when Reuben heard it, remember he's the oldest, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into the pit pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he may rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and they threw him in a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. So Reuben tries to intervene. Remember, Reuben's the one that slept with his his dad's concubine's concubine, okay? And that was usually a play for um, uh, leadership authority within the family. It was like an early takeover bid of dad's power. Uh, It was found out. He was rebuked. He wasn't quite held in the same esteem by Jacob anymore or by his brothers. But he was still the oldest, and you could see this as an opportunity for him to reclaim some of that favor from his dad. I'm going to save your favorite. And so he talks his brothers out of killing him, which was awesome. Let's just throw him in the pit because, you know, we don't want to shed blood. Simeon and Levi know that's kind of second half for you, but, but it's still wrong, and there's still consequence to that. Remember Cain and Abel, right? It didn't go well with them, right? Remember, <coughs> remember Uncle Esau wanted to kill dad. That wasn't okay. Let's not do that to our brother. There was sure that God would uh, visit us with retribution over this. Let, let's not do this kind of thing. God will pay back for evil. We, we got to avoid this. So he talked his brothers into it in order to save him. But was this really the best way forward? I want to share a little bit. And I know people don't like confrontation today. I, I know that because... I witness it every day within the church, within the neighborhoods, within the swim clubs, within just about every place that I am. One person will do one thing and everybody else is talking behind their back but not addressing the situation. What Reuben needed to do is to share 
truth in love. What, didn't he? I mean, isn't that the right way forward in, in every circumstance according to God? Truth in love. We can't kill our brother even though we don't like what's been going down. Period. It's not okay. Period. Not all of the ten that were there that day were gun-ho about killing their brother. That was a I'm a step too far. And with Simeon and Levi, they didn't know if they'd be next. And so they were a little bit cautious. They needed somebody with some kind of authority to step up and say, this isn't okay. I know he's being a jerk, or I know he's too big for his head, or or I I know dad's been showering all this this favoritism upon him. And I know it's not fair, and I know it stinks, but, but we can't do this thing. I wish more people would stand up and share truth in love. It would solve a lot of the bullying. It would solve a lot of the, the going, going along to get along. It would solve a lot of the peer pressure. Somebody needs to stand up to say it's not okay. We need to go a different direction. And thus, especially in this crowd, risking that they may throw you in the pit with them. But that would have been the right way forward. If they had listened, he would have thwarted everything else that was to follow. He would have redirected his brother's aggressions in a way that could have maybe eventually led to a reconciliation. He could have gone back and shared with his dad, Dad, you've got to somehow fix this. Your your, your favoritism of, of Joseph is killing the rest of us. So much so that we're talking about crazy things. There needed to be somebody who would take some responsibility to do the right thing. And even in this great attempt by Reuben, it still fell short. It was still trying to sneak away to the right path instead of be the right path. They sat down to eat. All the while, we learn later on, Joseph's crying out for his life, impassioned pleas to save him, and they're just eating dinner, you know, letting it all kind of bounce off them. Then they sat down to eat and looked up, and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites, coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And when Judas said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let our hand not be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh and his brothers listened to him. The Midianite tradesmen passed by and they drew Joseph up out and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver and they took Joseph to Egypt. And so as Mike said, the Ishmaelites and Midianites, both descendants of Abraham, both in the desert country, both seem to be linked together a lot through Scripture. So either they lived very close together or kind of became one people over a period of time. We're not sure. But anyway, they were used interchangeably, Midianites or Ishmaelites, especially in this text. And so they sold their brother into slavery. Now, there's different views on what... uh, Judah did at this point. One, and probably the prevailing view, is that Judah, listening to the conversation that was still transpiring, hearing his brother's cries, probably still some talk of killing him anyway, sought to find a way to finally rescue Joseph from their hand once and for all. And even though it was kind of an extreme measure, it would get him out of harm's way, at least temporarily. And he'd kind of give him over to God and hope that God would protect him. And so in that sense, he suggested selling Joseph appealing to their brother's greed so that he could get him to safety. Others kind of look at this and just said Judah kind of just wanted to make a buck, right? What, like he says, what good is it if we just leave him here, you know? And so he either was profiteering or he was trying to save Judah or Joseph. But one way or the other, he appealed to his brother's greed. And there's just a, 
There's a worldly wisdom here I'm going to give you. And that's use people's greed to your advantage. Just a worldly wisdom. Uh, and, and it will work every time. Um, you can see that in our world today, how bribes work, uh, how um, donating tons of money to a political campaign uh, opens their ears, right, to some of your agendas. But it's a piece of worldly wisdom that Jesus even gives as he's talking about the shrewd manager. Use other people's greed to your advantage. If you got money, use it for good and use that to your advantage to help good in this world. There's a second thing, too, um, as, as Judah's going through this, he's trying to, again, in the first view, he's trying to figure out a way for God to save his brother. He's been part of these conversations over and over, probably all the way on this trip, especially. I mean, the dreams had just happened. Their hatred was, was palatable. Simeon, who knew what he was capable of, right? And so he's just trying to help. And, and Reuben... I don't know, he took off. He wasn't even there when this was happening. Did he go to be with the sheep? I don't know. Maybe he had a plan to save Joseph, but he didn't tell him about it, you know. And so he was just trying to do something that would kind of get him out. When Reuben returned from the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, boy's gone. And I, where shall I go? Reuben, as the oldest, was sure to be blamed. And they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped it the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. It's an interesting text right here, um, and one of the questions that it begs is, did Jacob know? The reason I ask that, and so many commentators do, is because he didn't allow his sons to come up with the excuse he gave it to them. He certainly recognized some of the animosity of his sons toward his youngest. It's probably why he had kept him back in the first place. He had seen some of their aggression toward the Sechemites. He had heard some of their conversation, especially in result of the dreams. It probably was only because he was concerned that he sent Joseph in the first place. And now they share with him this robe dipped in blood. But where were the bones? And where were the pieces of flesh? Which would certainly be there if an animal devoured. They don't tend to lick you up every speck of you and carry you off. Where was the rest of the evidence? It was not there. So you wonder, and it would explain in a little bit, part and parcel of what would follow. He tore his garments and put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days and his sons and his daughters. And interesting that he refers to daughters here. We just know of Dinah, but it indicates that he had more. Rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, no, I shall go down to Shoal to my son in mourning. As his father wept for him. I talked to a lady one time, and she was kind of older in years, and her son was living with her, kind of bilking off of her, um, living at her house because it provided him a place to live, using her money because it provided him a place to have money. He wasn't working, but she was afraid of her son that he would do something harmful to her if she asked him to leave. 
kind of a scary place for a mom, isn't it? That you would think that little of your son, that you'd be threatened by your son. <laughs> Reading between the lines a lot here, and some of the commentators are too, but you get the sense with the aggression that his sons had shown, with the sheer numbers of them, with the fact that they hated their brother in that way, with the fact that he sensed that they had done something horrible. The part of him was just trying to go along to get along, so to speak. If I confront them, will they do me harm? If I come confront them, will, will something ill befall other people in my family? And so whether he was just grieving his son's death or he had a sense of something more sinister going on, he couldn't let go of his grief. And, and, so not, and let me just talk about grief for a little bit. There is a season upon someone's passing where you need to grieve it. And grief goes through cycles and you go through all kinds of different emotions and you have to deal with the fact that someone you loved was there and now is not. And you're going to miss them and it's horrible and it's hard and it's going to mean something different and you have to look forward to a different future and it's, all that change can be overwhelming. And it's important that we spend time grieving because if you don't grieve, it's going to come out later on and it's going to hammer you at a time that you just aren't ready for. But then there also comes a time in grieving where you need to say, okay, I need to embrace what's left. And it's where you step out and say, okay, my life is different, but it can still be good. And if God wanted me, he would have already taken me, but he must still have purpose for me yet in this world. And so I must keep on going on living he still has purpose for me. There's still things for me to do. One of my favorite lines is in Joshua, of all places, and it says, Moses, my servant, is dead. And then he goes, okay, Joshua, now go, right? Okay, you've grieved enough. It's time to go. You can't keep in your, in your grief time. It's time to go accomplish things for me in my kingdom, for the nation of Israel, all those different things. And so there's both parts. When you get stuck in grief, you stay in the former and never really move on toward the latter, toward re-engaging in life and living the life that God still has for you to live. Jacob never quite got to that second part, either because he sensed something more sinister and he was afraid or because he was just grieving the loss of not just Rachel, his favorite wife, but now his favorite son and he just couldn't get past it. And then he goes and takes a break from the story of Joseph he gives kind of a weird story about Judah, okay? Um, if you look at the sons of, of, of Jacob so far, you got Reuben, who slept with his concubine, kind of off the list of the people that you'd give the, the spiritual blessing to. And you got Simeon and Levi, who led a campaign against the Sechemites and, and destroyed them. Okay, those two are off the list now. And so you got Judah, who's left. Judah... I guess most nobly, you would say, maybe he was trying to save Joseph's life and there was some good in him. He, he cared about his brother. He didn't want to see him his harm. But now you go and you learn a little bit more about Judah as this transpires. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adelamite whose name was Hira. So what we learn from that is that Judah separated himself from his brothers shortly after this event. Whether the guilt of being the one who sold him into slavery just was too much and every look from one of his other brothers and every time his dad was sad and all the side glances and all the just the duplicity and the lies he just couldn't take so he left 
or because his brothers were so evil, he left. That's again, thinking most nobly. But either way, he left his brothers and went to seek out a life on his own. Not that they didn't shepherd the same pastures and it wasn't like he moved 50 miles away. It was just away from the encampment. There Judah saw a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chizib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. It's an interesting thing here. First of all, we learned that Judah needed to get away. Second thing we learned is upon getting away, he married an unbeliever, a Canaanite, in the land. And that part and parcel of raising a child in that environment was that this particular child, the eldest, pursued evil directions. It doesn't tell us a whole lot about those evil directions that he pursued, but it was enough that God looked down upon him and put him to death. We don't know how he put him to death or why he put him to death, but just that he was evil on the side of the Lord. And then Judah took, uh, and then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of the brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. So this was a Leverite marriage. So what happened is, is if your brother, the oldest born, married somebody and did not have kids before he passed, it was the job of the second brother, second oldest brother, to go and consummate that marriage or that, and have a child with that wife. That wife would then take that child and it would be in the name of the firstborn. And she would kind of move out and kind of do their own thing. But that was his job. They didn't have uh, stores where you went and got semen or anything like that, so you had to do it the old-fashioned way. So, so that was the job of the Leverite brother and it was his job and it was his duty and it was very, very serious. You must continue the line of the oldest brother. This was true in the Canaanite culture. It was true in the uh, Jewish culture. It was true all the way through this part of, the, I guess, the globe at this time. And so Onan, well, he married her, just like he was supposed to. Onan knew that the offspring, though, would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so that as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. So this was a common feeling of the second born, right? It could be my inheritance. My brother's dead, so I could get the firstborn's inheritance. And my oldest son could get the firstborn's inheritance. I don't want to do the Leverite marriage. It's all mine, right? And so instead of doing this duty, what was right in the land, I guess, for this time, there was a tendency for people to not want to do it. You see this with Boaz and Ruth, right? There was a kinsman redeemer, a Leverite marriage partner that was closer in relationship that could have married Ruth, but didn't want to compromise his inheritance. So he said no. And was it, oh, that's cool. No, he was slapped in the face with a sandal, which was to give insult to the guy for not doing the right thing. So Onan, feeling similarly, devised a way as to not get Tamar pregnant and so maintain his ability to have his firstborn receive the primary inheritance. Now, I'm going to share some things here because I figure if I don't, nobody else is going to. So, sometimes in context to this verse, uh, um, sometimes in context to this verse, they will equate it to masturbation and call it onanism. 
However, that's not what it's talking about here. That's not the great sin that's involved with this. The great sin is not fulfilling his Leverite duty, okay? Scripture is largely silent to the area of masturbation. Um, however, it does appear to be very much a thought sin. Whatever you're thinking, right, at the time, is what the greater sin is. So as a result of that, there's very few times that I can imagine that masturbation is okay. It probably lends towards sin because of the thought life that's going on during that period of time. It's why pornography, to be fair, is always sinful. So I've heard some people say, it's like God's most beautiful creation and we're just enjoying it. You know, like the mountains and the, you know, whatever. And I said, no. I mean, in the context of marriage, Absolutely. I mean, you praise God for this person that said, I do to you for the rest of your life. You, you praise this God for the partner that he's given you to experience life with and to be married to and to raise children with. It's extraordinary. It's one of his gifts to us. This thing is called sex. But pornography is something that destroys marriages and it complicates the single person. I'll give you some examples. When you turn toward masturbation or pornography instead of to your spouse, you're robbing them of the intimacy that God created in sexual, the sexual process to bring two people together. It's one of the ways that guys experience love in the context of marriage. It's one of the ways that you build intimacy into that marriage. Paul even warns, don't stop in marriage except for a time of prayer and then come back together again. Why give Satan a foothold? I see way too many couples because I've done and, and continue to do variety of marital counseling that use sex as a weapon or as leverage in their marriage instead of something to unify and to bond and to heal. It is one of God's greatest gifts in marriage. But when you go outside of that and you give it to a computer screen, you rob yourself of that intimacy. And your marriage intimacy can't help but be affected by that. And you find yourself distancing yourself from your spouse more and more and more. And it complicates the marriage and it hurts their feelings and it does all sorts of damage to the marital relationship. It's one of the most devastating things you can do to your marriage. And yet we live in a culture today that says, it's just part of being a man or a woman, apparently because over 50% of women today are addicted to porn. It's a systematic, it's a cultural problem. Do you know that more and more colleges are setting up porn addiction clinics in their campuses because kids have lost perspective in life because they're so addicted to the porn. For the single person, it objectifies the opposite sex completely. If you want to assure yourself of never having a girlfriend, get addicted to porn. You know why? Because girls, at least the studies suggest, they are attracted to intimacy. Not so much a physical intimacy, although that's part and parcel, but an emotional intimacy that comes from being known and being respected and being cared for. None of that do you get on a computer screen. Pornography is devastating our culture, and it's a funny thing. It's not funny. It's not funny, haha. It's funny, peculiar, that we live in a culture that has me too, and yet embraces objectification every single day. We're doing two counter things in our culture, embracing two things at the same time that are gonna make each other worse. And so I can't stress this enough, and I just figure if I don't share it, nobody will, but it's, I think it's important for us to understand the thing that makes masturbation a sin is because of the thought life. Pornography is always sinful because of the thought life that it produces. 
It destroys marriage. It complicates your relationships as a single person because you stop dealing with the person, relating to the person, caring for the person, and you just see the objectification. And if you wonder why our young people are struggling so much in relationships today, you add to that social media and texting where you don't even talk to the person anymore, you, you text at them. Kids just don't know how to communicate anymore in ways that are real, in ways that are helpful, in ways that they get past the surface and actually get to something real. And it's not just kids. Adults more and more are falling into that same kind of temptation and that same kind of trap. I'm gonna move on from there if that's okay. I'm sweating up here. Okay, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died, and Judah uh, was comforted, and he went into, up to Timnon to his, oh, I, I missed a whole section. Okay. Okay, so what Onan did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. And then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went, in, went and remained in her father's house. So Judah, seeing what happened to his first two sons, probably saw that Shelah was probably a little young at this time, probably still, I don't know, 13, 14, you know, not maybe quite old enough to be married. Um, but that was kind of an excuse. The right thing would have been to get them married at that point. Um, but he probably saw his son's heart was similar to that of his brothers and didn't want him to die. So he just kind of caused a timeout. Hey, he's just a little kid. Let's give it some time. You know, you go your way. I will go over here. Maybe you'll just forget about the whole thing. We won't have to deal with it. You know, people like that. Let's just put pause and not really deal with the situation and maybe it will get better. It doesn't ever, but that's the idea. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went to Timnah with his sheer, sheep shearers, he and his friend, Hurrah the Aldamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is the road to Timnah. In other words, she set herself up as a temple prostitute, which is a lot more classy prostitute than your, your average everyday prostitute. Temple prostitutes were actually looked at as a noble profession, right? Because you're helping them worship their God. It was one of the services that you provided when you worshiped that God. So she was, you know, not the common everyday prostitute, but one with class or something like that, or with standing. For she saw that Sheila was grown up by this point, probably 16, 17, 18 at this point, and she had not been given him in marriage. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she covered her face and he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. It's like, what was that? Oh, I don't know. It's one of those weird shows that you see on TV. Okay, she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. Kind of like your driver's license and maybe your thumbprints or something like that. It was, it was uh, identification for who you were. So he gave them to her and he went into her and she conceived by him. And she, then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put her garments of widowhood back on. And when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of this place, where is the cult prostitute who was in Anaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. 
So we returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep her things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent the young goat, and you did not find her. So Judah, okay, let me just be clear. Prostitution is always sinful. Sex outside of marriage is wrong in every possible way. Both for Tamar, even though she felt justified, still sinful, and absolutely for Judah. In both cases, sinful. Judah knew it was sinful, knew it was wrong, was probably a little bit embarrassed. His friend didn't have the same compunction, so he sent his friend to go give payment. Friend didn't find the person, and so he started asking around, which probably devastated Judah, thinking, what are you doing? You know, shh. But he asked around, and they're like, yeah, we don't know where the cult prostitute is that your friend slept with, you know, and, and so he was kind of being made a laughingstock. And so when his friend came back and shared with him, not just that he didn't find her, but that he'd been asking around, he said, okay, just let her keep it. Let's just kind of put an end to this, this whole deal. And, and maybe everybody will just forget. It seemed to be his theme for a period of time. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral, which she had. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Now, it does seem a little bit extravagant of a consequence, um, but... It was the consequence of that time, that or stoning, if you were in your father's house and found pregnant. It was considered a sin in Canaanite culture and in Israelite culture. Um, The sanctity of the virgin, of the daughter in your home, right, that you would give to someone who paid a dowry for your daughter, they they needed to be right. They couldn't be stained in any way or you wouldn't get as much money or... There was a whole bunch of things that would have been embarrassing about that. So one of the consequences of that during this time is that they would, that was essentially signing their death certificate if they were found to be impure in their father's house. Compounded with that, Tamar was loosely uh, promised to um, Judah's third son, right? Shelia. And while not a formal thing uh, of sorts because Judah refused to give her to him, him to her, uh, it was still kind of promised, and so it was having another man's baby, right? That is just not cool. And so part of the consequence of um, having a kid outside of wedlock was also burning or stoning to death. We have a, a different view in our culture today, not necessarily a scriptural view, but when you hear this, it's just a very different time, and it's a very different way of looking at that. They looked at this very seriously. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man whom these things belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose they are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. So she comes clean and says, hey, buddy, it's, you're the one. You didn't give me your son. I didn't want to be at my dad's house forever. I needed to have a kid so that my retirement was secure. This was the contractual obligation you made to me, and you were welching on it. She felt justified in every way. She grew up in a Canaanite household, so probably the stigma of this was not as great as it would be as we're listening to it right now. But she still sinned. She still did wrong. She still lied. She still deceived. Judah still had sex outside of marriage. There was enough guilt to be meted around in this, but Judah having some righteousness within him, said, you're more righteous than I. And he allowed her to live. And what's crazy about this, 
well, I'll read it. When the time of her labor came, there were twins within her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out her hand, and the midwife took, they tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Perez was in the lineage of David, which means he was in the lineage of Jesus. And so he was part of the promise, and he was the one that the promise would go through, through Judah, through Perez, through David, through Jesus. The spiritual blessing was conferred upon Judah and upon his son, even though they went about it in about the worst way you could possibly go about it. And what it does it say, what lesson does it teach? That God can work all things for the good of those who love him. It doesn't exonerate either person in this. You can't say it was God's will that they were this stupid. But God works all things for the good of those who love him. And he can bring good, even out of bad. There was a line in the song that I thought just was really cool. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal, right? Really cool line. No matter what you've been through in life, or what hardship you're going through, or how stupid you've been and the consequences that you've faced and experienced as a result of it. It's just, your sin complicates God's plan for you. It creates detours in your road of life that you don't need to go on that are painful and hard. But God's promise is, I will still love you. And his promise is, I will walk with you. And his promise is, I will get you to the other side. Just keep trusting me. Keep hoping in me. Continue to repent to me, and I will be found by you. God's promise is that nothing you face in life can take away your prize. You can't lose your salvation unless you give it away, and so I'll just share with you tonight, don't ever give it away. If you blow it, repent. If you're going through hard things, trust in the midst of the in-between, and know that God is faithful to his promises. Know that God loves you and know that he's there. Let's pray. God, we love you so much and we just, we take this time tonight as we've talked about some just uncomfortable things at times, I guess, and, and we just pray that we give them to you, Lord, and we pray that it shapes some of the way we look at our sexual culture. We, we give you some of these things, Lord, and, and pray that it gives us confidence and strength that we can't outsin your grace no matter how dumb we've been in the past, that as long as we turn towards you, Lord, and start trusting you and, re- and repent to you, that, that somehow, someway, you'll get us to the other side. That your love isn't vacillating like so many people in our lives are. That your love is continual. And your purpose for us is for us one day to be with you in heaven. Father, give us the strength to always cling to you, to always run back to you in hard times, and to trust you in all situations in life. And that's our prayer tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.